0: No Cross, No Crown by William Penn Chapter 3 The Daily Cross Therefore, O Christendom, the daily cross being both then and now the only way to glory, it will be to the great advantage of your soul to most seriously consider, first, what the cross of Christ is, secondly, where the cross of Christ is to be taken up, thirdly, how, and after what manner, is it to be born? And fourthly, what is the great work and business of the cross? As to the first, what is the cross of Christ? The cross of Christ is a figure of speech, borrowed from the outward tree or wooden cross on which Christ submitted to the will of God in permitting him to suffer death at the hands of evil men. The mystical or daily cross is that divine grace and power which crucifies the carnal wills of men, contradicts their corrupt affections, and constantly opposes the inordinate and fleshly appetites of their minds. This power may be justly termed the instrument of man's holy dying to the world and being made conformable to the will of God. Nothing else can mortify sin or make it easy for us to submit to the divine will in things otherwise very contrary to our own. The preaching of the cross, in primitive times, was fitly called by Paul, that famous and skilled apostle in spiritual things, the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Though to them that perish, it was then, as now, foolishness. That is, to those who were truly weary and heavy laden and in need of a deliverer, to whom sin was burdensome and odious, the preaching of the cross, by which sin was to be mortified, was the power of God, or the preaching of the divine power by which they were made disciples of Christ and children of God. And this power wrought so mightily upon them that no proud or licentious mockers could put them out of love with it. But to those who walked in the broad way, in the full latitude of their lusts, and dedicated their time and care to the pleasure of their corrupt appetites, to whom all yokes and bridles were and are intolerable, to these the preaching of the cross was and is foolishness. Where does the cross appear, and where must it be taken up? I answer, within, that is, in the heart and soul. For where the sin is, there the cross must be. All evil comes from within. Christ taught, from within, out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and defile the man. The heart of man is the seat of sin, and where he is defiled, There, he must be sanctified. Where sin lives, there it must die. It must be crucified. Custom in evil has made it natural for men to do evil, and as the soul rules the body, so this corrupt nature sways the whole man. But still, it is all from within. Experience teaches every son and daughter of Adam the truth of this. The enemy's temptations are ever directed to the heart or mind, which is within. If they take not, the soul sins not, but if they are embraced, then lust, or inordinate desire, is immediately conceived, and as the apostle says, When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is finished, that is acted, it brings forth death James one fifteen. Here is both the cause and the effect, the genealogy of sin, its rise and its end. In all this, the heart of evil man is the devil's mint, his workhouse, the place of his residence, where he exercises his power and art. Therefore, the redemption of the soul is aptly called the destruction of the works of the devil, 1 John 3, eight, and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, Daniel 9.24. When the Jews would have defamed Christ's miracle of casting out devils by a blasphemous imputation of it to the power of Beelzebub, Christ said, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods till he first bind the strong man. This both shows us the contrariety between Beelzebub and the power by which Christ dispossessed him, and it teaches us that the souls of the wicked are the devil's house, and that his goods, his evil works, can never be destroyed until he that wrought them and keeps the house is bound. All this makes it easy to know where the cross must be taken up, by which alone the strong man can be bound, his goods spoiled, and his temptations resisted, that is, within, in the heart of man. In the next place, how and in what manner is the cross to be daily born? The way, like the cross, is spiritual. It is an inward submission of the soul to the will of God as it is manifested by the light of Christ in the consciences of men, though it be contrary to their own inclinations. For example, when evil presents, that which reveals the evil does also instruct not to yield to it, and if a man complies with its counsel, it gives him power to escape it. But they that look and gaze upon the temptation at last fall in with it and are overcome by it, the consequence of which is guilt and judgment. Therefore, as the cross of Christ is that spirit and power in men, though not of men, but of God, which crosses and reproves the fleshly lusts and affections, so the way of taking up the cross is an entire resignation of soul to the discoveries and requirings of it, without consulting worldly pleasure or carnal ease or interest, for these are captivated in a moment. Thus the soul must continually watch against every appearance of evil, and, by the obedience of faith, in true love to and confidence in God, cheerfully offer up to the death of the cross that evil nature in themselves, which, not enduring the heat of the siege and being impatient in the hour of temptation, would, by its near relation to the tempter, easily betray their souls into his hands. This may show to everyone's experience how hard it is to be a true disciple of Jesus. The way is narrow indeed, and the gate very straight, where not a word, no, not a thought, must slip the watch or escape judgment. Such circumspection, such caution, such patience, such constancy, such holy fear and trembling give an easy interpretation to that hard saying Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. For those who are captivated with fleshly lusts and affections cannot bear the cross, and those that cannot endure the cross must never have the crown. To reign, it is necessary first to suffer. Chapter 4. Denying Lawful Self Fourthly, what is the great work and business of the cross respecting man? It is of such great importance that this be truly, plainly, and thoroughly answered, that all that went before seems only to serve as a preface to it. Miscarrying in this is no less than a misguidance of the soul about its way to blessedness. I shall therefore pursue the question, with God's help, and the best knowledge he has given me in the experience of several years' discipleship. The great work and business of the cross of Christ in man is self-denial a word little understood, but of much depth in itself and of sore contradiction to the world. The Son of God has gone before us, and by the bitter cup he drank and the baptism he suffered has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. This made him put that hard question to the wife of Zebedee and her two sons upon her soliciting that one might sit at his right hand and the other at his left hand in his kingdom. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? It seems their faith was strong. They answered, We are able. Upon which he replied, You shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But their reward he left to his father. What was the cup he drank and the baptism he suffered? I answer, They were the denial, and offering up of himself by the eternal Spirit to the will of God, undergoing the tribulations of his life and the agonies of his death upon the cross for man's salvation. Now, what is our cup and cross that we must drink and suffer? They are the denying and offering up of ourselves by the same Spirit to do or suffer the will of God for his service and glory. This is the true life and obedience of the cross of Jesus. Narrow still, but previous to Christ it was an unbeaten way. For Christ came in the greatness of his love and strength, when there was none to help, not one to open the seals, to give knowledge, or to direct the course of poor man's recovery. And though clothed with the weakness of a mortal man, being inwardly fortified by the almightiness of an immortal God, He traveled through all the straits and difficulties of humanity, and, as the first of all others, trod the untrodden path to blessedness. Oh, come, let us follow him, the most unwearied, the most victorious captain of our salvation, to whom all the great Alexanders and mighty Caesars cannot be compared. For these were all great princes of their kind, and conquerors too, but on very different principles." Christ made himself of no reputation to save mankind, but these thoroughly ruined people in order to augment their name. They vanquished others, not themselves, but Christ conquered self, the very power that vanquished them. They advanced their empire by rapine and blood, but he by suffering and persuasion. They prevailed through force, but Christ never made use of compulsion. Misery and slavery followed all their victories, but Christ brought freedom and felicity to those he overcame. In all they did, they sought to please themselves. In all he did, he aimed to please his Father, who is God of gods, King of kings, and Lord of lords. Rightly, then, is he called the most excellent prince and conqueror, and it is this most perfect pattern of self-denial we must follow, if ever we will come to glory. To do this, Let us consider self-denial in its true distinction and extent. There is a lawful and an unlawful self, and both must be denied for the sake of him who, in submission to the will of God, counted nothing dear that he might save us. And though scarcely any part of the world has progressed as far as to need a lesson in the denial of lawful self, since every day they most greedily sacrifice to the pleasures of unlawful self, yet I shall at least touch upon it, as this may possibly meet with some who are so far advanced in this spiritual warfare as to receive benefit from it. The lawful self, which we are to deny, is that convenience, ease, enjoyment, and plenty, which, in itself, is so far from being evil that it may be considered the bounty and blessing of God towards us, things such as husbands, wives, children, houses, land, reputation, liberty, and life itself. These are God's favors which we may enjoy with lawful pleasure and justly improve as our honest interest. But, when God requires them, at what time soever, or if He is pleased to try our affections by making us part with them, I say, when they are brought in competition with Him, they must not be preferred, but denied. Christ himself descended from the glory of his Father and willingly made himself of no reputation among men in order that he might bring us to God. Thinking it no robbery to be equal with God, he humbled himself to the poor form of a servant, yes, to the ignominious death of the cross, and so delivered to us an example of pure humility and entire submission to the will of our Heavenly Father. This doctrine he teaches us in these words. He that loves father or mother, son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. Again, whosoever of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. He plainly told the rich young man that if he would have eternal life, he must sell all and follow him, a doctrine which was sad to him, as it also is to those like him who, notwithstanding all their high pretenses to religion— love their possessions more than Christ. Still this doctrine of self-denial stands as the condition to eternal happiness. He that will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. This made those honest fishermen quit their lawful trades and follow him when he called them, and caused others who waited for the consolation of Israel to offer up their estates, reputations, liberties, and lives also, to the displeasure and fury of their kindred and the government they lived under, for the spiritual advantage that accrued to them by their faithful adherence to his holy doctrine. It is true, many sought to excuse themselves from following him, as is seen in the parable of the wedding feast. Some had bought land, some had married wives, and others had bought yokes of oxen and said they could not come. Alas, an immoderate love of the world hindered them. Instead of acting as their servants, these lawful enjoyments became their idols. They worshipped them more than God, and would not renounce them to come to God. This is recorded to their reproach, and we may herein see the power of self upon the worldly man, and the danger that comes to him by the abuse of lawful things. What? Your wife dearer to you than your Savior? Your land and oxen preferred before your soul's salvation? Oh, beware that your comforts prove not snares first and then curses. To overrate them is to provoke him that gave them to take them away again. Come instead to follow him that gives eternal life to the soul. Woe to them that have their hearts in their earthly possessions, for when they are gone, their heaven stays here. It is the sin of the greatest part of the world that they adhere to their worldly treasures And how lamentable to behold their affections soiled and entangled with their conveniences and accommodations in it. The true self-denying man is a pilgrim, but the selfish man is an inhabitant of the world. The one uses the world as men do ships, to transport themselves or their supplies in a journey towards home. The other looks no further, whatever he claims, than to be settled in fullness and ease here. And he likes it so well, that if he could, he would never exchange it. No, he will not trouble himself to think of the other world till he is sure he must live no longer in this. Then, alas, it will prove too late. Not to Abraham's bosom, but to the rich man he must go. The story is as true as it is sad. On the other hand, it is not for nothing that the disciples of Jesus deny themselves. And indeed, Christ himself had the eternal joy in his eye. For the joy that was set before him, says the author to the Hebrews, he endured the cross. That is, he denied himself and bore the reproaches and death of the wicked, despising the shame, the dishonor, and the derision of the world. This made him not afraid, nor shrink, and he has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God." To the encouragement and great consolation of his disciples, when Peter asked him what they should have who had forsaken all to follow him, he answered, Verily I say unto you, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, who were then in apostasy from the life and power of godliness. This was the lot of his disciples the more immediate companions of his tribulations, and the first messengers of his kingdom. But that which follows is to all. He says, And every one that forsakes houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. It is this recompense of reward, this eternal crown of righteousness, which, in every age, has raised in the souls of the just a holy neglect, yes, a contempt of the world. This is no new doctrine. It is as old as Abraham. In several most remarkable instances, his life was made up of self-denial. First, in quitting his own land, where we may well suppose him to have been settled in the midst of plenty, or at least sufficiency. And why did he leave it? Because God called him. This should be reason enough. But such is the world's degeneracy that, in reality, it is not. Indeed, the same act, upon the same incentive, in any man now, though praised in Abraham, would be mocked and derided. Alas, how apt are people to commend what they do not understand, and how they admire in their ancestors the very same acts which they despise in the faithful disciples of their own times. But Abraham obeyed. And the consequence was that God gave him a mighty land. This was the first reward of his obedience. The next was a son in his old age, past the time of his wife's bearing children. Yet God soon called for his darling, their only child, the joy of their age, the son of a miracle, and the one upon whom the fulfilling of the promise made to Abraham depended. God called for this son, bringing a trial which one would think might very well overturn his faith and shake his integrity, or at least bring about this dispute in himself. This command is unreasonable and cruel. It must be the tempter's, it cannot be God's. For would God give me a son to make a sacrifice of him? Should a father be the butcher of his only child? That he should require me to offer up the son of his own promise, by whom his covenant is to be performed, is absurd. Thus might Abraham have naturally argued, in order to withstand the voice of God and indulge his great affections to his beloved Isaac. But good old Abraham, who knew the voice that had promised him a son, had not forgotten it when it called to him again. He disputed not, though it looked strange, and though he no doubt felt a measure of surprise and horror as a man. He had learned to believe that God, who gave him a child by a miracle, could work another to preserve or restore him. His affections could not outbalance his duty, much less overcome his faith. To the voice of the Almighty, Abraham bowed, built an altar, bound his only son upon it, kindled the fire, and stretched forth his hand to take the knife. But the angel stopped the stroke. Hold, Abraham, your integrity is proved. And what followed? A ram served for the sacrifice, and Isaac was his again. This shows how little will serve where all is resigned, and how low a sacrifice contents the Almighty where the heart is approved. It is not the sacrifice that recommends the heart, but the heart that gives the sacrifice acceptance. God often touches our greatest comforts, and calls for that which we most love and are least willing to part with. He does not always take them utterly away. But he proves the soul's integrity, cautions us from excesses, and, in order that we might remember him, the author of all blessings we possess, teaches us to live loose to the world. I speak my experience. The way to keep our enjoyments is to resign them. And though this be hard, it is sweet to see them returned, as Isaac was to his father, with more love and blessing than before. O foolish world! O worldly Christians, not only strangers, but enemies to this excellent faith. And while you are so, you can never know the reward of it. Job's self-denial was also very remarkable. For when the messengers of his afflictions came thick upon him, with one doleful story after another, until he was left almost as naked as when he was born, the first thing he did was fall to the ground and worship that power, and kiss that hand that stripped him. He was so far from murmuring, he concluded his losses of estate and children with these words, Naked came I of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, the deep faith, patience, and contentment of this excellent man. One would have thought that this repeated news of ruin had been enough to overset his confidence in God, but it did not. His faith stayed him, and he tells us why. I know, says he, that my Redeemer lives. And it is manifest that his Redeemer indeed did live, for he had redeemed him from the world. His heart was not in his worldly comforts. His hope lived above the joys of time and the troubles of mortality. He was not tempted by the one, nor shaken by the other, but firmly fixed, That, after my skin has been struck off from my flesh, yet I shall see God. Job 19.26 Thus the heart of Job was both submitted to and comforted in the will of God. Moses is the next great example in the sacred story for remarkable self-denial. Before the times of Christ's appearance in the flesh, he had been saved, when an infant, by an extraordinary providence, and it seems by what followed, for an extraordinary service. Pharaoh's daughter, whose compassion was the means of his preservation, when the king decreed the slaughter of the Hebrew males, took him for her son and gave him the education of her father's court. His own graceful presence and extraordinary abilities, joined with her love to him and desire for her father to promote him, must have rendered him, if not capable of succession to the throne, at least of being a chief minister of affairs under that wealthy and powerful prince. For Egypt was then, what Athens and Rome were afterward, the most famous center for learning, arts, and glory. But Moses was ordained for other work, and guided by a better star, a higher principle. No sooner had he come to an age of discretion than the impiety of Egypt and the oppressions of his brethren there grew a burden too heavy for him to bear. And though so wise and good a man could not have been lacking in generous and grateful sentiments because of the kindness of the king's daughter to him, yet he had also seen that God who was invisible, Hebrews 11.27, and did not dare to live in the ease and plenty of Pharaoh's house while his poor brethren were required to make brick without straw. And so, with the fear of the Almighty taking deep hold of his heart, He nobly refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose rather a life of affliction with the despised and oppressed Israelites and to be the companion of their temptations and jeopardies than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproaches of Christ, which he suffered for making that unworldly choice, greater riches than all the treasures of that kingdom. Nor was he so foolish as they thought, for he had reason on his side. It is said, He had an eye to the recompense of reward. Hebrews 11.26 So, he did but refuse a lesser benefit for a greater. In this, his wisdom transcended that of the Egyptians, for they made the present world their choice, which is as uncertain as the weather, and so lost that world which has no end. Moses looked deeper, weighed the enjoyments of this life in the scales of eternity, and found they had no weight there. He governed himself not by the immediate possession, but by the nature and duration of the reward. His faith corrected his affections, and taught him to sacrifice the pleasures of self to the hope he had of a future more excellent recompense. Isaiah was no inconsiderable instance of this same blessed self denial, who, from a courtier, became a prophet and left the worldly interests of the one for the faith, patience, and sufferings of the other. His choice did not only lose him the favor of men, but their wickedness, enraged by his integrity to God in his fervent and bold reproofs of them, made a martyr of him in the end, for they barbarously sawed him asunder in the reign of King Manasseh. Thus died that excellent man, commonly called the evangelical prophet. I shall add one example more. From the fidelity of Daniel. This was a holy and wise young man, who, when his external advantages came into competition with his duty to Almighty God, relinquished them all. Instead of being solicitous how to secure himself, as one minding nothing less, he was, to the utmost hazard of himself, most careful how to preserve the honor of God by fidelity to his will. And though at first it exposed him to ruin, yet, as a great encouragement to all who keep a clear conscience in an evil time. His faithfulness to his Creator at last advanced him greatly in the world, and the God of Daniel was made famous and fearful through his perseverance, even in the eyes of heathen kings. What shall I say of all the rest who, counting nothing dear that they might do the will of God, abandoned their worldly comforts and exposed their ease and safety, as often as the heavenly vision called them, to the wrath and malice of degenerate princes in an apostate church. More especially Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Micah, who after they had denied themselves, in obedience to the divine voice, sealed up their testimony with their blood. Thus was self-denial the practice and glory of the ancients, who were predecessors of the coming of Christ in the flesh. And shall we hope for heaven without it now, when our Savior himself was made the most excellent example of it? And that, not as some would eagerly have it, namely, He suffered for us so that we need not suffer, but rather, He suffered for us that we might deny ourselves and so be the true followers of His blessed example. Whoever you are, therefore, that desire to do the will of God, but faint because of the opposition of worldly considerations, remember, I tell you, in the name of Christ, that he who prefers father or mother, sister or brother, wife or child, house or land, reputation, honor, office, liberty, or life, before the testimony of the light of Jesus in his own conscience, shall be rejected of him, in the solemn and general examination of the world, when all shall be judged and received according to the deeds done, and not the profession made, in this life. It is the doctrine of Jesus that if your right hand offends you, you must cut it off, and if your right eye offends you, you must pluck it out. That is, if the most dear, the most useful and tender comforts you enjoy stand in your soul's way, interrupting your obedience to the voice of God and your conformity to His holy will revealed in your soul, you are engaged under the penalty of damnation to part with them. The way of God is a way of faith, which is as dark to natural sense as it is mortal to self. The children of obedience with Holy Paul count all things dross and dung that they may win Christ and know and walk in this narrow way. Speculation will not do, nor can refined notions enter it. Only the obedient will eat the good of this land. They that will do my Father's will says the blessed Jesus, shall know of my doctrine. Them he will instruct. There is no room in the heart for instruction where the lawful self is Lord and not servant. For self cannot receive it, and that which should receive it is oppressed by self with fears and doubts. What will my father or mother say? How will my husband treat me? Or what will the magistrates do with me? For though I feel a most powerful persuasion and a clear conviction upon my soul of this or that thing, yet, considering how unpopular it is, what enemies it has, and how strange I shall seem to some, I hope God will pity my weakness if I sink. I am but flesh and blood. It may be that hereafter he will better enable me, and there is time enough. Thus speaks the selfish, fearful man. Deliberating is always the worst, for the soul loses in consultation, but the manifestation of light brings power with it. Never does God seek to convince people, but upon their submission He empowers them. He requires nothing without ability to perform it, for that would be mocking, and not saving men. It is enough for you to do what God shows to be your duty provided you consent to the light and spirit by which he gives you that knowledge. They that lack power are those who do not receive Christ and his convictions upon the soul, and such will always lack it. But such as do receive him, receive power also, like those of old, to become the children of God, through the pure obedience of faith. Therefore, let me beseech you by the love and mercy of God, By the life and death of Christ, by the power of His Spirit and the hope of immortality, you whose hearts are established in your temporal comforts and are lovers of self more than of these heavenly things, let the time pass suffice for such things. Do not think it enough to be clear of certain gross impieties which others are found in, While your inordinate love of lawful things defiles your enjoyment of them and draws your heart from the fear, love, obedience, and self-denial of a true disciple of Jesus. Turn about, then, and hearken to the still voice in your conscience. It tells you of your sins and of your misery in them. It gives a living discovery of the vanity of the world and opens to your soul some prospect of eternity and the comforts of the righteous who are at rest. If you adhere to this, it will divorce you from sin and self. You will soon find that the power of its charms exceeds that of the wealth, honor, and the beauty of the world, and will finally give you that tranquility which the storms of time can never shipwreck or disorder. Here, all your enjoyments are blessed, though they be small, yet they are great because of that presence which is within them. Even in this world the righteous have the better part. For they use the world without rebuke, and do not abuse it. They see and bless the hand that feeds and clothes and preserves them. Beholding him in all his gifts, they do not adore them, but him. Indeed, the sweetness of his blessing is an advantage which such have over those who see him not. In their increase they are not lifted up. Nor in their adversities are they cast down, for they are moderated in the one and comforted in the other by his divine presence. In short, heaven is the throne and earth is but the footstool of that man who has self underfoot. Those who know this station will not easily be moved. They learn to number their days that they may not be surprised at their disillusion. They learn to redeem their time because the days are evil remembering that they are but stewards and must deliver up their accounts to an impartial judge. Therefore, not to self, but to him they live, and in him they die, and are blessed with them that die in the Lord. Thus I conclude my discourse of the right use of lawful self. Chapter 5. Denying Unlawful Self I now come to unlawful self, which, more or less, is the immediate concern of the greater part of mankind. This unlawful self is twofold. First, that which relates to religious worship. Second, that which concerns moral and civil conduct in the world. They are both of infinite consequence to be considered by us. I shall be as brief as I may, with ease to my conscience, and no injury to the matter at hand that unlawful self and religion which ought to be mortified by the cross of christ is man's invention and performance of the worship of god which is not truly so either in its institution or performance in this great error many of those who attribute to themselves the name of christians take the lead being most exterior pompous and superstitious in their worship these not only err exceedingly by a spiritual unpreparedness in the way of their performing worship to Almighty God, who is an eternal spirit, but the worship itself is composed of what is utterly inconsistent with the very form and practice of Christ's doctrine and the apostolic example. The worship of the apostles was plain and spiritual. The worship of today is gaudy and worldly. Christ's worship was inward In the soul, the world's worship is outward and bodily. The true worship was suited to the nature of God, who is a spirit. But man's invented worship is accommodated to the carnal part. Instead of excluding flesh and blood, behold, there is now a worship calculated to gratify flesh, as though the goal were not to present God with a worship pleasing to him, but to make one pleasing to man. This is a worship dressed with stately buildings and imagery, rich furniture and garments, polished voices and music, costly lamps, wax candles and perfumes, and all acted with the most pleasing variety to the external senses that art can invent or cost procure. They act as though the world were to turn Jew or Egyptian again, or that God was an old man and Christ a little boy, to be treated with a kind of religious masquerade, For so they picture him in their temples, and too many in their minds. Such a carnal worship may very well suit this idea of God. For when men can think him such a one as themselves, it is no wonder they address him and entertain him in a way that would be most pleasing from others to themselves. But what said the Almighty to such a sensual people of old upon a like occasion? You thought I was such a one as yourself, but I will reprove you and set your sins in order before you. Now consider this, you that forget God, lest I tear you to pieces, and there be none to deliver. But to him that orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50, verses 21-23 The worship acceptable to him is to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Micah 6.8 He that searches the heart and tries the thoughts of man, and sets his sins in order before him, who is the God of the spirits of all flesh, looks not to the external fabric, but the internal frame of the soul and the inclination of the heart. Nor can it be soberly thought that he who is clothed with divine honor and majesty, who covers himself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who lays the beams of his chambers in the deep, who makes the clouds his chariots, who walks upon the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flaming fire, and who laid the foundation of the earth that it should not be moved forever, can be adequately worshipped by those human inventions which are the refuge of a people who have apostatized from the primitive power and spirituality of Christian worship. Christ, Drew off his disciples from the glory and worship of the outward temple and instituted a more inward and spiritual worship, in which he instructed his followers You shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, says Christ to the Samaritan woman, worship the Father. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It is as if he said, For the sake of the weakness of the people, God condescended, in times past, to limit himself to an outward time, place, temple, and service, in and by which he would be worshipped. But this was during men's ignorance of his omnipresence, when they considered not what God is, nor where he is. I am come to reveal him to as many as receive me. God is a spirit, and he will be worshipped in spirit and in truth people must be acquainted with him as a spirit, considering and worshiping him as such. It is not the bodily worship nor the ceremonial services in use among you now that will serve or give acceptance with this God who is a spirit. You must obey his spirit that strives with you to gather you out of the evil of the world, so that bowing to his instructions and commands in your own souls you may know what it is to worship Him as a spirit. Then you will understand that it is not going to this mountain nor to Jerusalem, but doing the will of God and keeping His commandments. Commune with your own heart and do not sin. Take up your cross, meditate in His holy law, and follow the example of Him whom the Father has sent. Stephen, that bold and constant martyr of Jesus, told the Jews when a prisoner at their bar, Solomon built God a house. However, the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands. As says the prophet, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? Behold, here is a total overthrow to all worldly temples and their ceremonious accessories. The martyr follows up his blow upon those apostate Jews, who were the pompous, ceremonious worldly worshippers of that time, saying, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. It is as if he had told them, Neither your outward temple, rites, and shadowy services— nor your pretensions to succession in nature from Abraham and by religion from Moses are of any import. For you are resistors of the Spirit and opposers of His instructions. You will not bow to His counsel, nor are your hearts right towards God. You are the successors of your father's iniquity, and though you are verbal admirers of the prophets, you are not the successors of their faith and life. The prophet Isaiah carries it a little farther than what is cited by Stephen. For after having declared what is not God's house, the place where his glory dwells, these words immediately follow. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. Behold, O carnal and superstitious man, the true worshiper, and the place of God's rest. This is the house and temple of him whom the heavens of heavens cannot contain, a house which self cannot build, nor the art and power of man prepare or consecrate. Paul, that great apostle of the Gentiles, twice expressly uses the word temple to refer to man, and not to a building of man's hand and art. In his first epistle to the church at Corinth, he writes, Know you not that you are the temples of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God? And again, he tells the same people in the second epistle, For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. And then cites God's words by the prophet, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the evangelical temple, the Christian church, whose ornaments are are not the embroideries and furnitures of worldly art and wealth, but the graces of the Spirit, meekness, love, faith, patience, self-denial, and charity. Here it is that the eternal wisdom, who was with God from everlasting before the hills were brought forth or the mountains laid, chooses to dwell, rejoicing, he says, in the habitable part of his earth, and my delight is with the sons of men. Proverbs 8.31 not in houses built of wood and stone. This living house is more glorious than Solomon's dead house, which was but a figure, even as Solomon was a figure of Christ, who builds us up as a holy temple to God. It was promised of old that the glory of the latter house should transcend the glory of the former, which indeed may be applied to this. For the prophet spoke not of one outward temple or house excelling another in outward luster, For where is the benefit of that? But the promise was that the divine glory, the beauty of holiness in the gospel house or church, made up of renewed believers, should exceed the outward glory of Solomon's temple, which, in comparison of the latter days, was but as flesh to spirit, fading resemblances compared to the eternal substance. Christians do indeed have meeting places, yet not in the Jewish or heathen way but rather plain, void of pomp and ceremony, suiting the simplicity of their blessed Lord's life and doctrine. For God's presence is not with the house, but with them that are in it, who are the gospel church and not the house. Oh, that such as call themselves Christians knew a real sanctity in themselves by the washing of God's regenerating grace instead of that imaginary sanctity ascribed to places then, they would know what the church is, and where it is that God appears in this gospel day. Yes, this made the prophet David say, The king's daughter is all-glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. What is the glory that is within the true church, and that gold which makes up her inward glory? Tell me, O superstitious man, is it your stately temples, altars, Carpets, tables, tapestries, vestments, organs, voices, candles, lamps, censers, plates, and jewels, with the same furniture found in your worldly temples? No such thing. These are nothing in comparison with the divine adornment of the King of Heaven's daughter, the blessed and redeemed Church of Christ. O miserable apostasy! O wretched substitute for the loss of the apostolic life, the spiritual glory of the primitive church! Yet some of these admirers of external pomp and glory want to be thought lovers of the cross, and so have made themselves many. But alas, what hope is there of reconciling this to Christianity? For while these pretend to worship God with their outward crosses, they most dangerously err from the true cross of Christ, and that holy abnegation of self which was of His blessed appointment. Indeed, such crosses seem to stand in the way of the true one, for instead of mortifying their wills by it, they have both made it and do use it according to their wills, so that these decorative crosses have become an emblem of those who do nothing but what they wish. Yet by this they desire to be thought the disciples of Him who never did His own will, but only the will of his heavenly Father. These outward crosses are such as flesh and blood can easily carry, for flesh and blood invented them. They are therefore not the cross of Christ, which is the power of God to crucify flesh and blood. Thousands of them have no more virtue than a crumb. They are poor, empty shadows, carried about as charms, though they cannot repel a single evil. Indeed, Men sin with them upon their backs, and though they display them over their heart, alas, their beloved lusts lie there too, without the least disquiet. They are as silent as the mock gods of Baal, having no life or power in them. And how could they? For their substance is earthly, and their image and workmanship are but the inventions and labors of worldly artists. They are yokes without restraint, and crosses that never crucify. A whole cartload of them would leave a man as unmortified as it found him. Men may sooner knock their brains out with them than their sins, and this, I fear, is already known in the very conscience of those who use them and adore them. Nor is a reclusive life, the boasted righteousness of some who lock themselves up in monasteries and convents, much more commendable, or one bit nearer to the nature of the true cross. For though this is not unlawful... It is unnatural, and true religion does not teach it. The true Christian convert and monastery are within, where the soul is encloistered from sin. And this religious house the true followers of Christ carry about with them, not exempting themselves from interactions with the world, though they keep themselves from its evils. But the monastic life is an idle and unprofitable kind of self-denial, which is burdensome to others, Men and women are locked up within, lest they do mischief without, learning a kind of patience by force, a self-denial against their own will, avoiding temptation rather than learning to be faithful and constant in it. It is no great feat if they do not commit the sins they are not tempted to commit, for where the eye does not view, there the heart does not crave. The cross of Christ is of another nature. It truly overcomes the world— and leads to a life of purity in the face of all allurements. Those who bear it are not thus chained up for fear they should bite, nor locked up, lest their faith be stolen away. They receive power from Christ, their captain, to resist evil and do that which is good in the sight of God. Indeed, they despise the world, and love its reproach above its praise. They do not offend others, but love those who offend them. What a world should we have if everybody, for fear of transgressing, should cage themselves up behind four walls? No, the perfection of the Christian life extends into every honest labor and commerce used among men. Such severity is not the effect of Christ's free spirit, but a voluntary and fleshly humility, shackles of man's own making and putting on, without prescription or reason." Monasteries and convents are their own lawgivers, and set their own rules, punishments, and penance, a constraint harshness that is out of joint with the rest of creation. For society is one of the great ends of creation, and not to be destroyed for fear of evil. It is the sin that spoils it which must be banished, by steady reproof and a conspicuous example of tried virtue. True godliness does not turn men out of society— but enables them to live better in it, and excites their endeavors to mend it, not hiding their candle under a bushel, but setting it upon a table in a lampstand. Besides, such things are selfish inventions, for by them men run away by themselves and leave the world behind to be lost. Christians should rather keep the helm and guide the vessel to its proper port, not quietly flee the ship from the back, leaving those that remain without a pilot to be driven by the fury of evil times upon the rocks or sands of ruin. Taking up the cross of Jesus is a much more interior exercise. It is the circumspection and discipline of the soul in conformity to the divine mind revealed therein. Does not the body follow the soul, and not the soul the body? Consider then, that no outward cell can shut up the soul from lust or the mind from its infinite unrighteous imaginations. The thoughts of a man's heart are only evil, and that continually, Genesis 6-5. Evil comes from within, and not from without. How then can an external application remove an internal cause? Or how can a restraint upon the body work a confinement of the mind? Examine, O oh man, your foundation— what it is, and who placed you there, lest, in the end, it should appear that you have put an eternal cheat upon your own soul. I must confess I am jealous of the salvation of my own kind. Having found mercy with my Heavenly Father, I would have none deceive themselves to perdition, especially about religion, where people are most apt to take all for granted, and lose infinitely by their own flatteries and neglect. The inward, steady righteousness of Jesus is something far different than all the contrived devotions of poor, superstitious man, and to stand approved in the sight of God excels all bodily exercises in religion which result from the invention of men. The soul that is awakened and preserved by His holy power and Spirit lives unto Him in the way of His own institution and worships Him in His own spirit, that is, in the holy sense, life, and leadings of it, which indeed is the true gospel worship. I mean no disregard for true Christian retirement, for I do not only acknowledge, but I admire solitude. Christ himself was an example of it. He loved and chose to frequent many mountains, gardens, seasides alone. Indeed, it is requisite to the growth of piety, and I reverence the virtue that seeks and uses it, wishing there were more of it in the world. But this should be free and not constrained.